0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome
1: back, cardio nerds. It's Amit and Dan. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report series, produced in collaboration with the American College of Cardiology Fellows and Training section. Each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from that program will present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from their program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you're about to hear
2: is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the CardioNerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced, while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com forward slash nerds. every little bit goes a long way we're also excited to grow the platform by mentoring the next generation of cardio nerds we are establishing the cardio nerds academy and are looking for residents and fellows to join as cardio nerds fellows please see the link in the episode description to submit an application and now without further ado let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardionerds colleagues
1: Friends, welcome back. We are absolutely thrilled to be joined by peers and colleagues at the Allegheny General Hospital Cardiology Fellowship Training Program. We're going to go through an awesome case and I'm going to have uh, everyone on the call uh, just introduce themselves so we can get started.
3: Hey guys, it's Adnan here. I'm one of the chief cardiology fellows here at AGH this year. I'm originally from Toronto, Canada, so shout out to my home Toronto Raptors, still the defending NBA champions. I actually Whee! did an internal medicine, internal medicine <laughs> residency here in Pittsburgh at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center before switching sites to AGH for my cardiology fellowship. In my free time, I am basketball obsessed. Dr. Kachi and I still play one-on-one. But I'm here with some of my favorite cardiology fellows, and I'll let them introduce themselves.
4: Hey, everyone. It's Mike. I'm one of the first-year fellows. I'm a native Pittsburgher, and I did my residency training and chief residency here at AGH. I'm excited to start my journey here in the cardiology fellowship. My free time, I like to enjoy outdoor activities with my family and watching my beloved Pittsburgh Steelers, Penguins, and Pirates.
5: Hi everyone, this is Kushani. I'm one of the second year cardiology fellows. I did my internal medicine residency at the University of Connecticut. I came to AGH for cardiology and I'm loving it here. Outside of cardiology, I enjoy reading, hiking, and doing yoga. Pittsburgh has this fantastic park called the Frick Park, which I really enjoy going to. Hi everyone,
6: this is Mahadi. I'm one of the second year fellows here at AGH. I'm originally from India, did my residency and chief residency at University of Missouri, Kansas City. And I'm now here a year into my fellowship and truly love it. My main interests within cardiology are infiltrative cardiomyopathies and interventional cardiology in heart failure. And outside of cardiology, you'll either find me painting or biking in my free time.
2: Hey everyone this is Dan from CardioNerds. It's just super excited to welcome you to the Cardi family. We have been looking forward to this episode and this case discussion for a long time now and really excited that you took time on your Sunday to meet us. We are virtually in Pittsburgh and I have to say I haven't been there I know a lot about Pittsburgh. I know a lot about the wonderful aspects of medicine that comes out there and I have a lot of friends from there and I know that people that emigrate from Pittsburgh to Elise Hopkins or University of Maryland they wear their Steelers, whatever paraphernalia, sports paraphernalia, they wear it with such pride. And I know that I'm not really into sports, but I know that if there's a Ravens-Steelers conflict, I stay away. I know that it can get violent. So I run away. But tell us a little bit about Pittsburgh and what, you know, some of your favorite spots and then set the scene for our discussion. Are we in a restaurant or at a park? Give us an idea. Take us there.
5: Hey, Dan, thank you for asking us that question. So like I said in my introduction, actually, I really like hiking. And surprisingly, there's a lot of places to hike in and around Pittsburgh. There's a lot of nice short hikes to do to waterfalls here. There's also Frick Park and Shenley Park. I really like being outdoors and I find that it's very easy to do that here. Maybe Mike, who's been here all his life, can tell us more about the Steelers and the Penguins and how much he enjoys that part of it. Unfortunately, because of the pandemic, I haven't been able to see a single game and I'm so bummed out about it.
4: Yes, like I mentioned, I'm a native southwestern Pennsylvania guy. So grew up watching all of the sports teams around here. One nice thing about the city, it's very easy to commute around or a quick Uber trip. It's big enough that you have everything that you need here, but it's also small enough that you can get from one side of the city within a reasonable time period. The affordability is also there, so you can get down to games and not break your bank to get in and, and watch something and enjoy an afternoon. There's also a really nice food renaissance that's happening here in Pittsburgh, and Mahati's going to tell us about that.
6: Thanks, Mike. My husband and I are quite the foodies, and we've literally been eating our way through Pittsburgh this last year, and it's been great. There's a huge variety of restaurants, our favorite being the Indian cuisine, but right from Indian to Ethiopian, whatever you want to find, it's quite a destination for food and drinks. And you should definitely tell us if one of you is planning to visit Pittsburgh.
2: Definitely. We will be there and we can't wait to check that out.
5: Would you like us to start with the case now?
2: Yeah, let's hear about a case. So we,
1: I'm just trying to picture in my mind right now. We're not going to a sports game because of COVID, <laughs> but it is a beautiful Sunday afternoon. I actually went on a hike earlier today with my son who he saw a deer and it was awesome. But we are, <laughs> we are hiking in a beautiful Sunday afternoon in Pittsburgh and we would love to do what we love to do in our free time is talk about
4: cardiology. Tell us about a case.
5: Thank you, Mike. I heard you had a really interesting case on the consult service. Want to tell us about it?
4: Yeah. So I was recently called about a patient in the emergency department with a chief complaint of fall. She's a 64-year-old female with a past medical history of both venous and arterial thromboembolism on lifelong warfarin therapy, patent foramen ovale, morbid obesity, who presented to the emergency department after a mechanical fall. She tripped on a porch step and subsequently fell forward, striking her left knee and head. She did not have loss of consciousness after falling. She did not have syncope or presyncopal symptoms, dizziness, chest pain, chest tightness, nausea, vomiting, changes in vision, motor weakness, numbness or tingling or any other symptoms prior to her fall. In the emergency department, the patient was found to have a fracture of the left orbital floor but no intracranial hemorrhage on CT head. However, she was also noted to be hypoxic to 87% with ambulation on room air. Upon detailed history taking, the patient reported that she had been developing worsening shortness of breath with exertion over time, which subsides with rest. When seen in the emergency department, the patient was requiring four liters of oxygen via nasal cannula. Because she has a known PFO, the ED called us for assistance.
5: That's such an interesting story, Mike. Tell me more about this hypoxia.
4: I'm glad you asked. She also mentioned that she's been social distancing, staying at home, has no sick contacts, and whenever she goes out for groceries, she always wears a mask. She has no recent surgeries, recent travel, lymphedema or swelling, or history of cancer. She has also been adherent to her warfarin therapy. The rest of her history is fairly benign. Her surgical history consists of a left total knee arthroplasty in the past and a remote cholecystectomy. For family history, her brother had a remote PCI in the past, but there's no other family issues of cardiac etiology. Medications include omeprazole, sertraline, and warfarin. From a social standpoint, she lives alone, is functional in her activities of daily living and is a lifelong non smoker with no alcohol or illicit drug use. So,
5: nothing very revealing in her review of systems or other medical history. What did she look like in the ED?
1: Guys, I'll chime in here to say that this is a really interesting patient from a medical history perspective, right? Because she's got a history of both arterial and venous thrombosis, which really doesn't have such a tremendous differential diagnosis. But just in terms of her background, You've got to think about, at least in my mind, my spidey senses are up thinking about things like proxysmal maternal hematuria, anaphylactic antibody syndrome, or a history of cancer. And in that context, presenting with dyspnea and hypoxemia, we definitely are wondering about a PE or what else is going on. But definitely, this is not your run-of-the-mill patient or your run-of-the-mill fall. So I'm really curious about the next steps in the evaluation here.
4: Great point. So the vitals that she got was temperature 97.8 Fahrenheit, heart rate was 74. Respiratory rate was 18, and her blood pressure was 101 over 53. Before I went down to examine her, the ED reported that in general, she was alert, she appeared her stated age, she was cooperative, and in no acute distress. Her heart was a regular rate and rhythm with good S1 and S2, no murmurs, gallops, or rubs. Her lungs were clear to auscultation bilaterally. Her lower extremities were normal with no cyanosis or edema, and good two pluses pulses bilaterally. She also had no jugular venous distension that they noted.
5: So that's a pretty benign exam outside of the fact that she's on 4 liters. That's not a small amount of oxygen to be on, especially for someone who's on room air. And like Dan was mentioning earlier, there's a wide differential here. So what are the tests that they get in the ED?
4: Great question, Kashani. So initial laboratory panels showed a sodium of 142, potassium of 4, chloride of 108, bicarbonate of 22, BUN 13, and creatinine of 0.5. Her AST and ALT were 17 and 7 respectively with an alkaline phosphatase of 64. Her white blood cells were 5.7, H&H was 13.5 and 40.7, and platelets were 171. Her INR was mildly subtherapeutic at 1.7. They did not check a troponin, probium or lactic acid at that time. They did get some imaging studies, though. Her chest x ray showed no acute pulmonary processes, and they performed a CT angiogram of the chest, which showed no pulmonary embolism, no consolidation, no, no edema, and no effusions. An EKG was also performed, which showed normal sinus rhythm with a heart rate of 72, right bundle branch block, no acute ST or T wave abnormalities, which was very similar to multiple prior EKGs.
5: That's some great data gathering, Mike. Thank you so much for that. So essentially, the CT angiogram effectively rules out some of the things on our differential, like an acute heart failure exacerbation, pneumonia, or any other active pulmonary processes which would explain our hypoxia. Even though she does have a right bundle branch block, we know from the imaging studies that she doesn't have a pulmonary embolism. So far, I don't have a very clear understanding of what's making her hypoxic. So what did you guys do next?
4: So I went down to examine the patient, and she was relaxing comfortably lying in the hospital bed. My exam initially showed very similar findings as the emergency department. And while I was contemplating further imaging, I decided to call Adnan to come see her as well.
3: So here's where things got interesting. When I went down to the ER to see the patient with Mike, I thought the same. She looked relatively benign in terms of her examination, but we decided to look for positional changes in the degree of her hypoxemia. We decided to sit the patient upright completely, and she actually desaturated to the low 80s, requiring four liters of nasal cannula. When we laid her back down, her saturations improved to 95%,
4: and she was visibly less dyspneic.
5: Wait, Adnan, are you telling me that you diagnosed Pratipnia orthodeoxia based on your exam?
4: Hold up, Kishani? Plotipnea orthodeoxia? Can you tell us what that means?
5: Yeah, so platipnea orthodeoxia is a fancy way of saying that someone is getting short of breath and hypoxic when they sit up, but feel and oxygenate better when they lay down. There are very few causes for it, but a PFO can be one of them. I wonder what her echocardiogram looked like.
2: This has been a phenomenal discussion, and I just wanted to tease out a little bit of what we're saying here because we are very focused and fixated on this potential vascular phenomenon that's causing shunt. And when it comes to hypoxia, we really have those five etiologies causing hypoxia, the classic low oxygen, VQ mismatch. We have diffusion issues like with ILD, and we have hypoventilation issues like with asthma or COPD or or ortho overdose. And what we're realizing here is that, and just to, again, bring out what we've shown with the imaging is... Is that you have clear lungs, which really takes out a lot of that differential. And you're basically at this point where you have shunt physiology, where deoxygenated blood is passing through the lung vasculature without going by healthy alveoli. Again, essentially, the imaging is letting us know that the alveoli are actually intact. There's no consolidations or no evidence of uh, pulmonary edema or things like that would create a shunt physiology. And even I know in the era of COVID, a lot of times we're thinking about ARDS-like phenomenon or we're not really seeing that either. So that is why, and I, I could see basically where Adnan is getting excited about uncovering a vascular phenomenon of shunt that's caused here. And we obviously know this patient has a PFO, but to be so smart and really try to tease that out in the positional sense, uh, is just phenomenal. And, and again, I appreciate hearing this discussion. And I'll
1: ask actually, Dan, what you brought out is such an important point. This patient clearly has an elevated AA gradient, but there's a disconnect between all of the data, which is so benign. And in my mind, I was thinking, we got to make sure the pulse ox is accurate. Maybe get an ABG or something and verify because it's, something, it's a disconnect. And I don't, I'd love to hear your thoughts about what tipped you off in terms of checking for positional changes, because I thought that was just brilliant and really wouldn't have been my go-to so early in the course.
3: Thanks for the question, Amit. Yeah, that was an excellent review, Dan. That's essentially what we thought when we were going about our differentials in terms of the evaluation of hypoxemia. She didn't meet the criteria for any of those common etiologies in regards to interstitial lung disease, a pulmonary embolism, acute hypoxic respiratory failure from acute pulmonary edema or heart failure. So nothing about her exam was consistent with her clinical presentation, and her hypoxia just seemed disproportionate to the way she presented. So in knowing about her history, and of course, being the senior fellow, I cheated, I looked at the prior transthoracic echo, and I knew that she had a PFO. So I was curious about whether or not she had positional changes in her hypoxia, just based on the fact that she just didn't appear to be presenting with anything that would make her hypoxic.
5: Also, Adnan is brilliant, and that's just the level of training we get at AGH, where we just know how <laughs> to diagnose platypnea orthodeoxia straight off the bat on the clinical exam. And we actually did, though. What Adnan explained was essentially what happened is that because we knew she had a PFO, and like Daniel said, because we had ruled out everything else at that point, we really wanted to go for the money test clinically to find out whether that shunt was clinically relevant.
1: That's perfect. And what a chief fellow move, Adnan. Awesome. I'd love to <laughs> recapitulate that someday.
5: <laughs> so we'll go and look at her echo now. Let's call Mahati, who was in the echo lab at
6: that time. Thanks for stopping by at the echo lab. This patient had a very interesting echo. So in addition to a routine complete echo evaluation, which was essentially all normal for her, we also decided to go ahead and do a bubble study.
3: So Mahati, how about you explain to us a little bit more in detail about what a bubble study actually entails?
6: Yeah. So a bubble study is also called a saline contrast study. It's essentially a way to evaluate for any intracardiac shunts that a patient may have. So sterile saline is shaken or agitated until tiny bubbles are formed, and then those bubbles are injected into a peripheral vein, which goes all the way to the right-sided chambers of the heart. The echocardiographic focus for this part of the study is an apical four-chamber view typically, mainly focusing on the left atrium. So, if these saline bubbles are visible in the left atrium within the first five cardiac cycles, then that becomes positive for an intracardiac right to left shunt of deoxygenated blood through the interatrial septum. And just like we all guessed, hers was positive.
3: Thanks, Mahati. What an excellent review. We were curious, and because we have all the imaging modalities available to AGH, we wondered about pursuing further imaging with a cardiac MRI. We thought we wanted to evaluate for any further structural heart disease abnormalities in addition to visualization of the PFO.
5: Actually, I was on my cardiac MRI rotation at that time and can describe for you what we found in what we call the tunnel of truth. She did not have any anomalous pulmonary veins or any other structural heart disease. While her left heart size and function were normal, her right heart ventricular systolic function was mildly reduced and there was mild hypertrophy noted as well. As we all know, cardiac MRI is the definitive way of assessing RV function. We were also able to calculate a QPQS for her.
4: Whoa, 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 Kashani. What exactly is a QPQS?
5: (laughs) A QPQS is how we assess the hemodynamic significance of the shunt by calculating the ratio of blood flow through the pulmonary artery to the blood flow in the aorta. When it is less than one, it means that there is a shunt from the right side of the heart to the left because the amount of blood in the two circuits should be the same. So this means that the RV is sending some blood directly into the left ventricle instead of it reaching the left ventricle via the pulmonary artery. For our patient, this ratio was 0.8. So now, based on both these studies, not only do we know that our patient has a shunt, but we also know that the shunt is hemodynamically significant.
1: And the tunnel of truth strikes again. A shout out to the, the cardiac MRI episode with Dr. Debbie Quan and Nicole Prestera was awesome and really we went through some of the other utilizations for cardiac MRI, but so helpful
3: here. What was next? Thanks, Kashani, and thanks, Ahmed. That's exactly what happened. But we went from the tunnel of truth to the table of truth. We brought um, our- you love
6: that. Oh my gosh. <laughs>
3: So next, we did a right heart catheterization. We actually found that she had normal right-sided filling pressures. The right atrium, the right ventricle, and her pulmonary pressures were all normal. Notably, her right atrial pressure was less than that of her wedge, making it unlikely that elevated right-sided filling pressures were causing this shunting. We also decided to repeat an echocardiogram with a bubble study via the right femoral vein because we were convinced that an anatomical etiology was the cause of the shunting. We did the bubble study from the surface echo initially from an antecubital vein. We saw an amount of shunting, but we wanted to quantify and know the severity of which. When we performed it from the right femoral vein, we noticed that there was torrential shunting from right to left, consistent with our concern that there was an anatomic etiology as to why she was shunting from right to left.
1: Oh, that's such a beautiful can... point. And it really highlights the anatomy in the right atrium. And so my wife is a NICU fellow. So uh, I have to mention that as a fetus, of course, the embryological blood flow is going to go from the right to left across a PFO. And so it's that eustachian valve that essentially directs blood from the IVC towards the interatrial septum. And so that's why doing a bubble study with injecting saline from an upper extremity, the bubbles go through the SVC and won't necessarily be directed towards the intraatrial septum. And so the test actually isn't as sensitive. But as you highlighted, injecting the blood from a lower extremity goes through the IVC and is directed towards the anatomic septum through that eustachian ridge. And so it's going to be a little bit more sensitive in that context. And even that, if your suspicion is very high, even that itself may not be enough. And so additive imaging like TEE or the tunnel of truth MRI can be helpful. But you have so much data here that you guys really did such a fantastic job clinching that diagnosis.
3: You guys summarized it it excellently. And that's essentially confirming our diagnosis for us. So we had platypnea orthodeoxia from a PFO that was causing right to left shunting, preferentially via the IVC and the femoral vein. And we decided to actually proceed with the PFO closure right then and there after we cinched our diagnosis. While we had femoral vein access, we upsized our sheets to eight and nine French. We actually used intracardiac echocardiography to visualize the intra septum and the PFO, and we placed an 18-millimeter amplatzer septal occluder device across the defect, and voila, no more PFO and no more right-to-left shunting.
5: I personally think that is such an incredibly cool thing to be able to do. To be able to fix such a unique cause of hypoxia is intellectually so satisfying. But Mike, how did the patient do symptomatically? Did we repeat her surface echocardiogram?
4: Yes, we did. Mahafi, can you tell us about her repeat echo?
5: Yeah. So on her repeat echo, we firstly
6: saw that she had a brand new Amplatzer device, which was very well seated. There were no issues with that. And we also saw that she had very minimal residual bubbles shunting from the right to left when we repeated a bubble study. And of course, over time, we anticipate that this minimal shunting should resolve completely as
4: well. Exactly. And most importantly, she was weaned off oxygen completely. When we sat the patient up, Ambulated proxen saturations remained at 96%, and she was completely asymptomatic. She was discharged from the hospital several days later in stable condition.
5: So we diagnosed platypnea orthodoxia accurately by our physical exam, confirmed it with two separate but meaningful imaging modalities. Then we confirmed it again with our right heart catheterization, and we also confirmed the anatomic significance of it by doing a femoral bubble study. Ultimately, we addressed the issue itself by PFO closure. Not only did the patient improve on subsequent imaging, but also clinically. On her follow-up PCP appointment, she's no longer chronically short of breath and feels much better. That's such a satisfying case. You weren't exaggerating when you said you'd seen a great case on the consult service, Mike.
2: First of all, kudos to the team. This is just a fantastic example of real intellectual thought process through a patient's anatomy and to match the symptomatology to the exam to the actual problem and then locate and really treat that exact problem. This, this is one of the things that gets me so excited about cardiology. And I too have had uh, two cases like this where you had positional shunting that really, it just resolves and it's amazing. You can get somebody off of oxygen or even a vent. And when I'm thinking about these shunts across the heart, I definitely want to always think about the size and the function of the chambers. We talked about the echo findings, how you had your LV and your RV that were fine. And we know that if you have a ventricular septal defect, that's a pressure overload of the RV. As every time the LV squeezes down and there's this connection between the LV and the RV, that pressure is transmitted to the RV. And so you end up getting a hypertrophied RV seeing these systemic pressures. When you have ASDs, what you end up seeing is an overload of blood as it basically circulates around, and it's usually in the LV side. The LV becomes volume overloaded. And here, we're not really seeing that. And again, it's consistent with a lot of the more of the PFO nature, where it's not quite as much of a volume, but it's actually more of a shunt with an oxygenation problem. And the other thing about shunting is, again, we, we went back to the five causes of hypoxia. And within shunting, you have alveolar squishing processes like uh, atelectasis and alveolar filling processes, which are pulmonary edema or blood or anything or pus that basically prevents blood crossing from the right to the left, passing healthy alveoli in both of those two cases. And then you have vascular shunt. And you have to be careful that with vascular shunting, you may think of it, okay, now that I'm vascular shunting, I'm not dealing with something that's dynamic but that's actually not the case as this case really highlights vascular shunting just because you have an anatomical vascular shunt you can have situations that set up that it's actually not present all the time and sometimes positionally present or sometimes present with different pressures and so it's just very important to recognize that and which is what you did and then demonstrated that as really consistent with their symptomatology yeah kudos if this is just a phenomenal case
5: yeah, I just wanted to also point out that this is actually why I love cardiology also. I love pathophysiology. I love understanding why things are happening and then being able to fix them from a position of understanding as opposed to from a position of randomness. I find it very fulfilling intellectually and also as a physician. And I also, the other thing that I really enjoyed about this case is that we first diagnosed the patient clinically as opposed to finding something on her echocardiogram and then going backwards to figure out if it was relevant or not and and I thought that was also something that was excellently handled by the team
1: And I couldn't agree more because in cardiology, there are all these themes of identifying a structural problem and then thinking about the functional consequence. And you guys, it's just such a great example of using all of the multimodality diagnostic tools and then eventually coming up with a plan that fixed a problem. But it is interesting just to think about what happened here. And I learned about this syndrome just two or three weeks ago in a case conference that one of my co-fellows, Josh Parker, gave called Arlius or acute right to left interatrial shunt which essentially is what your patient had. And there are two requirements. One is an anatomical problem that allows shunting. And two is some sort of change in physiology that caused more right to left shunting. And so initially when you were going over your EKG, I thought this was going to be an ASD because the right bundle branch block or the incomplete right bundle with an axis deviation typically indicates an ASD. But this patient had a PFO, and this is not a new structural problem. This patient has lived with a PFO for a long time. And so the second requirement is some sort of cardiovascular pulmonary change that induced right to left shunting. And so, you know, and sometimes we identify the problem, sometimes we don't. But problems could be things like PE or a pneumonia causing hypoxic vasoconstriction and elevated right filling pressures or a RV infrac with RV failure and elevated RA pressures. That really wasn't the case here. And sometimes we just don't know the answer. But I think the important thing was you identify the structural problem and really were pretty confident that that was the cause of her functional problem, the hypoxemia and effectively managed it. And the best way, the gold standard of knowing that was the problem is you fixed it and the problem went away. So really awesome, awesome, terrific work. And really, in my mind, shows the capabilities of an advanced and collaborative heart center where you can pull together resources that required the work of expert fellows and cardiovascular imagers, interventional cardiologists to come together. And so we'd love to hear more about AGH because I can tell from this case, you guys do some awesome things over there. What makes your heart flutter about
3: AGH? Thanks, Amit. Yeah, that was a great review and a great overview of etiologies of shunting. Yeah, so AGH is near and dear to our hearts. This is part of the reasons why we're all here and why we love the program so much. So I'll start off by just saying that one of the huge takeaways about the program and cardiovascular training in general is volume. And I think AGH speaks for itself in terms of just being a high-volume quaternary care center with the opportunities to see and do everything that cardiology has to offer. I think that's one of the mainstays and the huge reason why I came here and why I was so happy to have matched here. You know, you have the opportunity to do level two or level three training in a lot of different modalities that include cardiac CT, cardiac MRI, echocardiography, the cath lab, obviously. And it just makes you really prepared to be a cardiovascular expert and a dedicated cardio nerd in the field of cardiology.
5: I'm going to echo what Adnan said. I really like being here at AGH. I really enjoy the intellectual stimulation from the very wide spectrum of clinical exposure that we have. We have every advanced treatment and imaging modality available across the board, from high-risk interventional cardiology, structural interventions, mechanical support devices for cardiogenic shock, cardiac transplantation to cardiac MRI. The exposure that we get as trainees, I think, is unparalleled. And again, Echoing what Adnan said, as a quaternary transplant and referral hospital, we benefit from seeing a unique and complex patient population, which I think would otherwise not be accessible to many other training programs.
4: Yeah, and so as a native of southwestern Pennsylvania, AGH has always been a staple of healthcare ever since I was a small child. Moreover, when I was here as a resident, I found myself making fast friends with the fellows, getting great mentorship from the faculty having ample teaching opportunities from both fellows and faculty who were above me at the time. The collegiality of my co-fellows and faculty really provides the perfect combination of autonomy and supervision. One of the really neat things that our program does for the first year fellows is during the first five days of our fellowship, the senior fellows and faculty put on a boot camp for us to really help us with the logistics and and getting into the new cardiology kind of problems that we're going to be facing when we're on call.
6: And Last but definitely not the least, I think apart from the abundance and variety of clinical cases that we're all very fortunate to be exposed to, I think the other definitive charm of the program is the commitment that the faculty members have to fellow training and teaching, whether it's bedside or it's daily conferences. We have a number of attendings that are all leaders in their own niches and working with all of them truly exposes the fellows to many nuances of cardiology, which I think is very important in terms of building a strong foundation as well as career planning. And I can speak for me as well as all the other fellows here that we are very excited to see what our future has in store for us with this strong background.
1: Wow, guys, taking this trail on such a beautiful Sunday afternoon, learning about cardiology from y'all. I just can't imagine a better way to spend my Sunday afternoon. Don't tell my wife I said that. But speaking (laughs) of expert, speaking of expert, I'm in trouble now. Speaking of, it's it's a good thing she doesn't listen to the show. (laughs) Speaking of uh, expert faculty, let's take it up a notch and get an expert perspective.
3: And now for our eCPR expert cardio perspective review from
7: Dr. Farhan Kachi. Thank you for having me on your podcast and for inviting us to share this interesting case we encountered while I was attending on the consult service. I want to start by thanking Adnan for introducing me to the CardioNerds podcast and by saying that I find your passion, dedication, and enthusiasm for cardiology and teaching infectious and a huge asset to our cardiology community. Now on to the case. Before we discuss platypnea orthodeoxia syndrome, I think a quick review of a patent foramen ovale can be helpful. As you may remember from embryology, we all shunt blood from right to left through the foramen ovale, bypassing the lung circulation in utero. When we're born and we take our first breaths and cause our lungs to expand, pulmonary vascular resistance decreases and blood begins to flow through the pulmonary circulation and left atrial filling pressure starts to rise. This rise forces the flap to close in about 75 to 80 percent of us. In the remaining 20 to 25 percent of us, the septum primum and secundum will fail to fuse and they leave what we now call a patent foramen ovale which is just a channel through which blood can flow between the right and left atrium. Now this is distinct from a secundum ASD, where there's an actual tissue deficiency that results from either an incompletely developed septum secundum or an excessively resorbed septum primum. The pathogenesis of a PFO isn't completely understood, but there may be a strong genetic component. Epidemiologic studies looking at siblings of patients presenting with a cryptogenic stroke And the PFO shows that they have a threefold higher likelihood of having a PFO themselves. Fortunately, the majority of patients with a PFO will remain asymptomatic and never have a clinical outcome that relates to their PFO. When they do manifest clinically, they've been most often associated with patients with cryptogenic strokes, controversially associated with refractory migraines, decompression sickness or air emboli, and scuba divers. And as we've discussed in the case here today, patients can present with platypnea orthodeoxia syndrome. Unfortunately, platypnea orthodeoxia syndrome remains difficult to diagnose and often is only considered after nearly every other diagnosis is excluded. As you can imagine, any number of cardiopulmonary comorbidities such as systolic or diastolic heart failure, arrhythmias such as atrial fibrillation, long-standing obstructive sleep apnea, emphysema, just to name a few, can all confound and mask the diagnosis as they can all contribute to the elusive chief complaint of shortness of breath. It takes... A very high index of suspicion and some tenacity to nail the diagnosis. As illustrated in this case, classic clinical features include shortness of breath and hypoxia that develop and worsen when a patient changes from supine to standing and improves when the patient returns to a supine position. The mechanism is thought to be associated with one of four processes intracardiac shunting, intrapulmonary shunting, a significant source of VQ mismatch, or any combination of these processes. Conditions that increase right atrial pressure or decrease RV compliance, as can be seen in patients with significant kyphoscoliosis, an elongated or tortuous aortic root, or hemidiaphragmatic paralysis, can all worsen right-to-left shunting through a PFO or an ASD. In this setting, when you change from a supine to an upright position, the interatrial septum can further stretch and further facilitate right-to-left shunting. Of blood from the IVC across the interatrial septum, decrease pulmonary blood flow, and worsen hypoxia and ultimately manifests as worsening shortness of breath. Confirming the diagnosis can be achieved non-invasively with an echo, supported by cardiac MRI, and invasively with a right-heart catheterization, which really is the gold standard for the diagnosis. An echo with an agitated saline bubble study can identify the presence of an interatrial shunt or an intrapulmonary shunt. A cardiac MRI can help with the diagnosis by identifying any associated congenital abnormalities, confirm cardiac chamber sizes, and non-invasively calculate a QPQS or shunt fraction to help guide invasive management. As a reminder, a QPQS of 1 suggests that systemic and pulmonary flows are balanced and no shunting is present. Less than 1 suggests an increased systemic flow with a right-to-left shunt, as in the case with platypnea orthodeoxys syndrome, while greater than 1 suggests more pulmonary flow, as would be seen with a left-to-right shunt. Once you get to a right heart catheterization, if the right-to-left shunt is not yet confirmed non-invasively, demonstrating a mismatch between pulmonary venous saturations and aortic saturations can be very helpful. Commonly, a pulmonary capillary wedge saturation can function as a surrogate of pulmonary venous saturation. Additionally, in the absence of pulmonary vascular disease, noting a pressure gradient between the right atrial pressure and the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure can also further support the diagnosis. Lastly, it's very important to rule out elevated pulmonary arterial pressures before considering closure of an interatrial shunt, as doing so in the setting of severe pulmonary hypertension can actually worsen a patient's clinical status. Now, with respect to management, there are no randomized controlled trials guiding the management of platypnea orthodeoxia syndrome. Instead, management is largely informed by a collection of case series The Mayo Clinic first reported success with surgical closure in seven patients, and over the years, percutaneous approaches have really replaced this. In fact, We published a case series from our experience here at AGH in 2009 showing that percutaneous closure in seven patients led to immediate resolution of the shunt and symptoms, and that's exactly what we observed in the patient we presented today. I'm also happy to report that she has followed up in our clinic as an outpatient and remains asymptomatic, no longer requiring supplemental oxygen, and is trying her best to remain socially distanced during the pandemic. To me, this was a wonderful example of how taking a step back away from the avalanche of lab and imaging data, often far too available at our fingertips, and paying a closer attention to a patient's history and bedside physical exam can help us hone in on the correct diagnosis. And with that, I'd like to thank my fellows for their hard work and relentless energy Craig, for his excellent leadership as our fellowship program director. And once again, a big thank you to Dan and Amit for the opportunity for us to share this amazing and fulfilling work we get to do every day at Allegheny General Hospital.
6: And now for a welcome to all the applicants to AGH from our program director, Dr. Craig Albert.
0: Thanks, Cardio Nerds, for joining us on our hike today. And no supplemental oxygen needed. I can confidently say after this session that the future of cardiovascular medical education is in wonderful hands. My name is Craig Alpert, and I'm the program director for Allegheny General, where my day job is as a heart failure transplant cardiologist with interest in infiltrative and inherited cardiomyopathies, as well as palliative care. While Dr. Kachi eloquently examined the structural intricacies of platypnea orthodeoxia, I wanted to take a few minutes to draw my own conclusions from our case. Specifically from my vantage point as the program director, since this case captures many of our fellowship's proudest elements. To keep it simple, I want to focus on three areas. Location, clinical training, and our most valuable resource of all, our people. First location. As a native Pittsburgher, I take great pride in our city and in our healthcare system, located a stone's throw from downtown Pittsburgh and the confluence of our three beloved rivers. For all those budding interventionists out there, the layout of our three rivers actually looks a lot like the left main bifurcating into the L.A.D. and circumflex, though admittedly the rivers flow in the opposite direction. Pittsburgh's charm has an unbelievably strong gravitational pull, and many people seem to find their way back if they ever chose to leave in the first place. I know this firsthand, having left for 15 years only to choose to return home to raise my own family in what is regularly voted to be one of America's most affordable and most livable cities. Known as both the Steel City and the City of Bridges, it is at once a small big city and a big small city, marrying the sophistication of the East Coast to the hospitality and friendliness of the Midwest. Pittsburgh has emerged from its rich, industrial, blue-collar heritage that is still very much celebrated and on display to become a cultural hotspot filled with foodies like Mahati, sports fanatics dressed in black and gold like Mike, and outdoor enthusiasts like Kushani, There's a world-renowned symphony, an active art scene with incredible museums, beautiful bike paths along the riverfront, and tons of activities for children. Of course, we have our quirks, putting french fries on sandwiches and salads, saving parking spaces with chairs, and speaking with a unique dialect of American English called Pittsburghese. Now, it just so happens that healthcare has played a critical role in shaping Pittsburgh's new identity, and AGH has been front and center. Our fellows are based at the flagship hospital, Allegheny General, a 600-bed urban hospital with origins dating back to the 1880s. In the 1960s, it emerged as a leading cardiovascular center thanks to a pioneering open-heart surgeon and has remained a cardiology destination for patients and providers alike ever since. AGH continues to enjoy its reputation as a heart hospital and recently opened two brand new 24-bed medical and surgical ICUs for our cardiovascular patients, each paired with its own step-down unit. Throughout the years, AGH has remained committed to training tomorrow's leaders in cardiology. Second, clinical exposure. AGH is one amazing cardiology classroom. As our fellows mentioned, it's very hard to capture the true breadth of pathology that we see every day ranging from the routine to the exotic, primary prevention to quaternary care. We care for the underserved northside community of Pittsburgh while drawing referrals from the entire tri-state region and often farther. We're an active VAD and transplant program with ample temporary MCS, including ECMO, a large cardiology-run pulmonary hypertension team, and an aggressive EP group specializing in the most complex of ablations. Our structural heart program, highlighted in this case with PFO closure, performs several hundred TAVRs in addition to dozens of Mitroclips and Watchmen each year. Our imaging program, again entirely cardiology-run, has one of the busiest cardiac MRI labs alongside high-powered cardiac CT, echo, and nuclear imaging, and the only PET program in the region. With high acuity and high volume, our fellows have the opportunity to graduate with Level 2 and or Level 3 training in multiple modalities. In addition, our fellows participate in our preventive cardiology and specialty clinics, including Women's Health, Lipid Clinic, Aorta Clinic with Dr. Kachi, and the Amyloid, Hypertrophic, and Palliative Care Clinics with me, just to name a few. Most of our fellows share the AGH experience with the broader cardiology community through abstracts and posters at regional, national, and even international conferences. In the end, this well-balanced curriculum enables us to graduate well-rounded practitioners that are extremely comfortable caring for the sickest of patients. Yet we must also acknowledge that no two fellowship paths are the same. The flexibility, which begins as early as first year and increases each subsequent year, allows fellows to tailor their experience to their interests in future career plans, developing skills as lifelong learners in cardiology that will position them to be leaders in their future professional homes. And that brings me to our third and most important area to highlight, our people. Each year, we welcome six of the country's most talented internal medicine graduates who are team players ready to build and grow together. Today's case illustrates the camaraderie and teamwork that enables our fellows to take the best possible care of our patients and of themselves. Many programs offer the clinical pathology, and several pair this with the sophisticated, cutting-edge tools best used to treat its patients. I would submit this to be necessary, but definitely not sufficient to build the ideal cardiology training environment. What we feel to be truly unique, however, is that all of this at AGH takes place within a nurturing and supportive culture in which the fellows are just as likely to be discussing a case in the cath lab as they are at a pickup basketball game with the faculty. Our diverse faculty enjoys expertise across the cardiovascular spectrum and believes strongly in our educational mission. They dedicate their time to teaching, mentoring, and learning from one another in this ideal academic intellectual environment. But it's not just cardiologists. Our fellows are lucky to work alongside incredible critical care intensivists, talented surgeons, residents, and medical students, accomplished nurses, pharmacists, and social workers, among others. Fellows are trained from the outset to function within a multidisciplinary team that will serve them well in their future careers. At the end of their three years, our graduates transition into subspecialty training in jobs that are as diverse as our trainees themselves, again made possible by our well-rounded yet flexible curriculum. Some fellows are invited to join our faculty upon graduation, again signaling the confidence we have in our training program. We thank you for taking the time to listen and sincerely hope you will consider exploring all that we have to offer at Allegheny General, and Ednan, Kushani, Mahati, and Mike, you continue to make your AGH family very proud. Wow, what an amazing case. A huge thanks to
1: the fellows and faculty for enriching us with yet another terrific discussion and incredible addition to the Cardi Nerds case report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review, key take-home and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for The Heartbeat, the Cardio Nerds newsletter. You can join the email list using a link in the episode description, as well as from our website, www.cardionerds.com. We thank the ACC Fit section chaired by Dr. Noshin Riza for their support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our incredible production team for elevating our platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Doss. Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Avalon Song, and Bibin Berghese are all internal medicine residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as their phenomenal med ed mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karan Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split.
5: So we'll go and look at her echo now. Let's call Mahati, who was in the Echo Lab at that time. Adnan has a special ringtone. Amazing! What a ringtone! <laughs> so good. I love it.